Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Mike Volkov brings 35 years of legal experience. Matt Kelly is the founder and editor of Radical Compliance. Sarah Haddon is the publisher of Corporate Compliance Insights. Jay Rosen is Mr. Monitor who knows his way around the culture of compliance. And Jonathan Armstrong, a partner at Cordery Compliance in London, rounds out this top group of compliance practitioners. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take a look at the Airbus International Anti-Corruption Enforcement Action. Jay Rosen lays out the facts for us and takes a look at the Department of Justice perspective. Mike Volkov takes a look at it from the ITAR perspective. Jonathan Armstrong considers the SFO and the UK perspective. And Matt Kelly wraps up with some thoughts on policy, compliance, and what happens when an organization is committed to to doing business corruptly going forward. All on this episode of Everything Compliance. Jay Rosen, could you set the stage in this massive international anti-corruption enforcement action for us? Happy to, Tom. So, uh, As Tom said, I'm going to lay out the FCPA component of this matter and what usually uh, rings up on everybody's uh, screen is the numbers. So Airbus paid $4 billion, which is 3.6 billion euros, to settle their global bribery and trade charges with France, the United Kingdom and the United States after an eight-year investigation, which was initially triggered by a British whistleblower. In the United States, Air Force, excuse me, Airbus entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with the DOJ and paid a total of $582 million to settle FCPA, an international traffic and arms regulation, ITAR, conspiracy charges. Airbus paid $294.5 million to settle FCPA charges and $232.7 million to settle the ITAR charges. Airbus also forfeited to the Department of Justice a $55 million bond and a civil forfeiture action. The DOJ said the bond was traceable to the proceeds of the ITAR-related conduct. In terms of the deferred prosecution agreement, the DOJ imposed a criminal penalty of $2.0 billion for FCP-related offenses The DOJ also kindly agreed to credit the amounts that was paid to French prosecutor PNF of up to $1.8 billion. The DOJ's $2.09 billion penalty makes this the largest FCPA enforcement action ever, topping Petrobras's paltry $1.78 billion settlement in 2018, which formally topped the list of the biggest FCPA enforcement actions, according to the FCPBA blog. The DOJ filed a criminal information in federal court in Washington, D.C., detailing the bribery and trade-related charges. The FCPA-related violations that stem from a plan to bribe Chinese and other foreign officials to sell aircraft. As part of the U.S. resolution, Airbus also agreed Friday Uh, We agreed to a $10 million settlement with the U.S. State Department to to resolve violations of the Arms Export Control Act, AECA, and ITAR. The State Department said Airbus will be allowed to spend half of the settlement, $5 million, for remedial compliance measures. ITAR includes requirements for exporters to disclose to the State Department payments to its third-party intermediaries for certain overseas sales. In the obligatory corporate remarks, Airbus chairman Dennis Ronk said in a statement, the settlements we have reached turn to the pain on unacceptable business practices from the past. The strengthening of Airbus's compliance program is designed to ensure that such misconduct cannot happen again. Sound familiar? He said that Airbus's decision to voluntarily report and cooperate with authorities was the right one. So now we've taken a look at the numbers. Let's take a look at the Department of Justice and the U.S. perspective. 
Deferred prosecution agreements have been a feature of the U.S. criminal justice system for longer than they have in France and the United Kingdom. While they must be approved by the court, U.S. judges have traditionally played less of an active role in scrutinizing them than their French and British counterparts. The DPA with the Department of Justice focused solely on a bribery scheme in China. Indeed, the DOJ acknowledged the limited reach of its jurisdiction over Airbus. However, despite covering only one jurisdiction and recognizing the stronger claim of the French and the UK authorities, the Department of Justice still levied a significant penalty against Airbus. Under the DPA, the total penalty for the alleged misconduct and breach of the FCPA would have nearly been $2.1 billion. And as I just mentioned, they were able to credit this $1.8 billion for the payments made to French Parquet National Financier PNF. The DOJ also awarded Airbus with a 25% discount for full cooperation and remediation, significantly less than that provided by the French and English courts. Notably, the Department of Justice did not award voluntary disclosure credit to Airbus since it disclosed the conduct after the corruption-related investigation uh, by the SFO. The DOJ did note that Airbus did disclose the conduct to the fraud section within a reasonably prompt time of becoming aware of corruption-related conduct that might have a connection to the United States. The DOJ's position regarding voluntary disclosure provides companies with some insight into an issue that has been somewhat ambiguous in the DOJ's past guidance, but it also raises an interesting conundrum. The FCPA enforcement policy requires companies to provide information to the DOJ, quote, prior to an imminent threat or disclosure or government investigation, close parentheses. The DOJ guidance does not specify that an investigation of any corrupt conduct, including in a foreign country for foreign conduct, could foreclose a company from receiving voluntary disclosure credit in the U.S. Therefore, after Airbus, to preserve voluntary disclosure credit and the possibility of declination, companies will need to decide whether to disclose to U.S. authorities conduct with no U.S. ties in case such ties are later discovered in the course of an ongoing investigation. Paired with the DOJ's emphasis on timely disclosure, this may prove particularly challenging in practice. Another noteworthy aspect of the DOJ enforcement is that the State Department joined the DOJ in order to resolve alleged violations of the Arms Export Control Act and its implementing regulations, ITAR. Later on in this podcast, our colleague Mike Volkov will delve into the ITAR issue. These export controls came into play because Airbus provides defense articles and defense services, which are covered by ITAR regulations. Number one, prohibiting the payment of political contributions, fees and commissions in connections with ITAR-covered products without reporting them. And two, failing to maintain proper records of the sales of these products. The involvement of the State Department in an enforcement action against a foreign corporation for corruption-related offenses is quite rare. But recently, there has been an increasingly overlap between the FCPA and economic sanctions regime. Indeed, a couple of years ago, back in 2019, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission brought an enforcement action against Quad Graphics for allegedly violating the FCPA economic sanctions and export control for engaging in transactions with Cuba. Further, some recent U.S. sanctions regimes have focused on targeting individuals allegedly involved in corrupt activities. So let's take a look at the takeaways for both the uh, compliance practitioner and for those who work within companies. The Airbus settlement has been widely recognized as one of the most important in the field of corporate crime in recent years. Here are a few takeaways. The role of the UK export finance in this case highlights that the government and quasi-government bodies who do business with corporations will be keeping a close eye on their anti-corruption measures. A corporation with insufficient or ineffective anti-corruption measures is likely to find it increasingly difficult to create and maintain such relationships. While the financial cost of breaching such settlements may be significant, the advantages to a corporate entity in doing so 
remain quite obvious. Similarly, settlements remain an attractive way of resolving investigations for authorities with limited resources that are under increasing pressure to deliver timely outcomes. No matter how serious the underlying conduct, a corporate entity may still avoid prosecution if the other factors that weigh in favor of a DPA are present. When to report and to whom to report still remain the key decisions that any corporate entity who has uncovered wrongdoing will be required to make. These decisions can have significant consequences on the outcome that may be achieved at a later date. Enforcement agencies and those approving DPAs remain keen on incentivizing timely self-reporting and meaningful cooperation. Recent outcomes suggest that this is likely to be a key factor as to whether a DPA is offered or approved. The implementation of remedial measures and cultural changes after wrongdoing has been discovered will also be an important factor in determining whether to offer or approve a DPA. Changes in personnel can be significant, but those responsible for making such decisions will be looking for much more than that. And finally, we should keep in mind the international nature of this settlement. Today, there is more global cooperation between investigation and prosecution agencies than ever before. In this case, such cooperation extended far beyond France to the United Kingdom and the U.S. to virtually every continent in which Airbus carried on business. Equally, authorities are getting far better at coordinating their efforts to reach simultaneous. Uh, Jay, you've written uh, fairly extensively on the Benchkowski memo and how it can be used as a roadmap to help a company that finds itself in an FCPA investigation. Uh, Obviously, this case began long before the Benchkowski memo uh, was released, but do you see the actions by Airbus uh, certainly in the United States, in terms of their uh, extensive cooperation and remedial efforts as consistent with what the Benchkowski memo laid out, or did it perhaps go in a different direction? No, I, I think the uh, it's a great question, Tom, and I think Airbus um, did everything they needed to. Uh, they had the window when to cooperate with DOJ, and I, I think um, – we have to go back to those two earlier questions about, you know, uh, once you do find wrongdoing, uh, are you going to report? So that's binary. And then the second question is to whom are you going to report? And, uh, you know, sometimes companies need to do a risk assessment. And uh, when this matter was getting started, uh, it's possible that the company could have been more forthcoming, but they still did get a 20, 25% discount. And they also had the fees that were paid to the uh, French regulators applied against the U.S. fees. So I think um, their actions were consistent with what Benchkowski would like to achieve. And um, I think that's the outcome we got. So, Jonathan Armstrong, can we pick up with Jay's question about what's the perspective from the United Kingdom on the Airbus uh, resolution? Yeah, I I agree with uh, many of the comments, if not all of them, that that Jay's made. I mean, I think one of the uh, essential differences between the UK historically and the US, and Jay's right that we've had DPAs for a much shorter time, um, is transparency. And We have, you know, I'm working from home today and where there used to be carpet on the floor of my office is now uh, documents relating to the Airbus case. And the authorities have been good in releasing a lot of information and being transparent, subject to two things, the French uh, blocking statute and privacy laws making that challenging, and also not wishing to prejudice the ability to um, to get a, a conviction against any of the individuals involved. And that is a live possibility, I think. Airbus have said that since 2015, they've partnered company with 63 uh, top and senior managers. I think we should give some credit to David Green here, the prior head of the SFO, um, as well as setting the standards of transparency with things like the statement of facts, Uh, which in this case is 211 paragraphs long. He also invested when he was running the SFO in technology to 
sweat documents. Now, that technology has been used before in investigations like Rolls-Royce that we spoke about before on this podcast. But we shouldn't underestimate the significance of that investment, I think, in cases like this. There were 30 million documents that the authorities uh, looked at. Um, but uh, the first time that I can recall, the specific mention of TAR, technology-assisted review, any discovery-type techniques to manage the investigation. But that's still a significant task to get uh, some of uh, this uh, evidence extracted from the email systems and uh, available for the judge to consider. And her judgment, of course, is very uh, reasoned, and we'll talk about some of that in a moment. And she should have credit for that as well, and for the court's transparency as well. We have a 122-paragraph judgment which goes through some of the facts as well. Now, as Jay said, um, this is a case which isn't a self-report as such. Airbus got uh, export credit financing from a UK government agency called UK uh, Export Finance. And they uh, wrote in 2015 to Airbus saying that they'd been through uh, a due diligence exercise and they'd got some concerns. They asked some questions to Airbus. And as a result, they said that they felt it appropriate to contact the SFO and said that their strong preference was if you like, that UKEF and, and Airbus go arm in arm to the SFO and talk to them about it uh, together. Um, as a result, they did that on uh, 1st of April uh, 2016. Just a coincidence that it was uh, all fools there here in the UK. They met with the SFO, uh, or they reported the incident on, on April 1st. On 6th April, the SFO met with Airbus and on 15th of July 2016, they opened a criminal investigation and told uh, Airbus about this in early August. Uh, um, Airbus rightly made a disclosure to the financial markets. And as Jay said, the US authorities and the French authorities were brought in uh, by the uh, SFO once that investigation was opened. Um, the UK investigation is geographically more widespread than the US. It relates to uh, offences in Malaysia, Sri Lanka, Taiwan, uh, Indonesia and Ghana. And uh, as Jay has said, it's a widespread bribery scheme over many years. Um, the investigation was extensive. The SFO have given some credit for cooperation. There was 10 meetings with the SFO, 40 employees, agents and intermediaries were interviewed and various documents were given to the uh, SFO, which may ordinarily be privileged. It's important to remember that there is a second investigation into an Airbus unit called GPT Special Project Management, which is ongoing. This is actually an earlier investigation having commenced in 2012, and that isn't affected by this settlement. That in investigation is still going on separately. I think from a UK perspective, uh, one of the interesting aspects of the judgment is the choice of charges. Now, before the Bribery Act came in, I think we predicted that most of the charges under the Act against corporations might be under Section 7, certainly those that led to a DPA the significance of that, this is the, the new offence of failure to prevent. And our long-standing listeners will recall that what you might call the hardcore uh, uh, offences, the uh, offences of bribing and being bribed, are, uh, can trace their history back to the 1800s in UK law. So the Bribery Act didn't change much in connection with the hardcore offences but did introduce uh, this new offence of failure to prevent bribery. And the, um, there was a whole uh, political effort at the time involving uh, Ken Clark, notably somebody who's uh, a fierce critic of, uh, of Boris Johnson, by the way. But uh, Clark and others tried to make the Section 7 offence 
not attract mandatory debarment. Now, the, the, this was back in the day when the UK still respected the EU regime. And this is significant because uh, a debarment in one EU country can carry across to others. The Section 7 thing is, is really significant. And it involved evidence from uh, accountants who said that thousands of jobs would be at risk in the UK, US, Germany, France and Spain if Airbus were debarred from contracts. Uh, and for that reason, Section 7 was the most appropriate uh, offence to charge. And it was said that uh, GDP could lower by 100 billion uh, euros. And there was also concern about Boeing and Airbus effectively being a duopoly and reviewing, uh, removing Airbus from tenders could lead to increased prices from government. And obviously, it's well publicized uh, the, the fact that um, Airbus themselves have uh, other issues. So I think the fine's significant, but the damage to Airbus is not as high as it could have been because obviously uh, debarment would have had a significant effect on the uh, business. Airbus have also agreed to pay the SFO's costs of around 5.9 million sterling. So a good day for the UK. I suppose, given that I'm geographically proximate or the most proximate to France, I could just say a few things if you wanted, Tom, on, uh, on Safander. So, uh, obviously, the French authorities played a real role in this. They led on some of the document uh, sweating, etc., because of French anti-blocking statutes, which made it difficult for information to come from France to the UK uh, or more significantly, to the US. Now, Airbus's structure is somewhat complex. It isn't a French business wholly, as some reports have said. There's a sort of Dutch entity and a French entity and a sort of pan-European entity that, that, that controls Airbus. But I think they still had in mind the complexities of, of French law, partly as a result of that. The supervision for this DPIA will be handled by the French authorities, and it's not a conventional monitorship as such. There will be a um, almost like a panel of uh, supervisors who will be involved in Airbus going forward. Um, the French investigation had some overlap with the UK in places like Colombia, but France led um, on China as Jay said the UK, uh, the US was also involved in that. Colombia, Nepal, uh, South Korea, UAE, Saudi Arabia, Taiwan, and Russia. M maybe, Tom, if we've got time, I could touch on two other points. Um, first of all, the DPA, as I think Jay remarked, leaves the way open for prosecutions. Now, the UK's track record on that isn't great. Uh, these are prosecutions against individuals. In Rolls-Royce, there was the promise, if you like, of prosecutions against individuals, uh, which didn't materialize, despite some uh, challenging emails. Remember, the face-scrubbing email being one of my favorites. And similarly, there's been another DPA case, which was in court in December, with charges against the individuals called Geralt Systems, where all of the individuals were acquitted. We do know, however, that there are investigations in other countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, which involve uh, criminal cases against individuals. And it's likely that all of those cases will run on. So I don't think this is the end of the story for Airbus and some of the employees involved. And obviously, as I've said, the GPT investigation will continue. One of the other uh, elements that I thought was interesting is, and we say this whenever we see these sort of cases, the sort of semi-sophisticated nature of bribery schemes. Um, obviously, they weren't sophisticated enough not to be unraveled. But one of the issues under investigation in Malaysia is the sponsorship of a sports team, which uh, seemed to have been cover to pay money to executives involved in an airline purchasing planes. 
there's uh, an investigation into a shell company controlled by the wife of an airline official in Sri Lanka, payments to a notary in Indonesia to buy property for a relative of an airline executive. And maybe two of my favorites I'd just point out. One is coded emails referring to Van Gogh paintings when discussing bribes. And the second is one of the most complex but stupid schemes that I've seen to to, uh, describe bribes where the, the payments of the bribes are described as prescriptions. So the doctor is going to prescribe the patient 164, uh, for example, which might mean that a bribe of $164,000 is going to be paid and everyone's given a patient or doctor code name. Um, uh, pretty unsophisticated. And obviously, whenever you're doing a document review, in investigations like that, and you see emails like that, they actually do the opposite of their intended effect. They make alarm bells ring. We know that executives don't spend all their time discussing prescriptions for drugs, and that actually highlights these schemes and makes them easier to find. So a fascinating case, I think, in in many, many respects. And... um, and I think in some respects, a, a victory for uh, the new regime at the SFO as well. I, I just wanted to say, Jonathan, thank you for bringing the Van Gogh painting detail to light and showing us that even in the midst of corporate corruption, you can still do it with respect for high culture. Good for them. So, Jonathan, uh, I think it's fair to say the SFO has received a fair amount of criticism over the years for various reasons. Do you feel like, or I guess, does the English bar and English compliance community feel like uh, that this is a a big shot in the arm for the SFO, a a plus for the SFO, having brought the um, the successful conclusion to the DPA, even with the open issue of the individuals? I think it's a qualified success. And, And I say that because I think some think that it's, not a punishment at all. It's just translated a criminal case into a checkbook exercise of writing, um, uh, you, you know, just writing, writing a check and getting. getting uh, I think there's also an issue around the individuals, as we've said. So if they can't make prosecution stick either at home or abroad, I think there'll be uh, a, uh, some concern that, that uh, you know, people are getting paid bonuses for doing this business, and they're walking away from the company scot-free. So I'd probably say it was a qualified success rather than absolute. The court, I'd like to ask you a question about the court's opinion around the deferred prosecution agreement. Uh, specifically the economic analysis. This is not something we had seen before in a deferred prosecution agreement. Do you think that the analysis the court went through was appropriate given the specific circumstances of this company operating literally as a duopoly on a worldwide basis and the number of countries that it had significant manufacturing and sales process? Or did you uh, think that the exercise was a little overblown? I find it slightly puzzling. You know, if I was, um, for example, I think some people in Europe have been somewhat critical of the way in which it is perceived. The U.S. authorities have stepped in to disadvantage Airbus. There have been episodes when contracts have been retendered in the U.S. So I think it is a, a little puzzling that we've got this sort of... Um, economic analysis going on in in, in a court judgment. So um, obviously, I haven't seen all of the evidence that was presented. All I've seen is the judgment. But my worry would be that it uh, creates a precedent for economic trade issues like this to impact uh, judgments and settlements. So Matt Kelly, Sitting in um, Boston, what do you see or what has struck you as key takeaways from the Airbus resolution? Yeah, well, I have a few, 
Although um, I did actually want to pick up just on what Jonathan was saying there about uh, economic considerations, because just as we are uh, speaking here today, earlier this morning, some Wall Street analysts moved a statement about Boeing. And I will have something to say about comparing Boeing's troubles to Airbus in a few minutes. But um, Boeing, for example, because of what they are struggling with now, analysts say that they... Boeing alone might slow U.S. GDP growth in 2020 by 20%. Now, we're only going to expect to grow like maybe 1.8 or 2% anyways. So one-fifth of that is it's not going to feel like a lot. But people, I think, do take these uh, considerations into effect because for a few industries, and Airbus and Boeing are both big players in one of the few like this, this is not something that people ignore, and it's just it's a timely notice about how these issues really, you know, they're out there. They're they're not wrong to bring up. Um, I also wanted to say, uh, actually, before I get into some of the policy management implications for Airbus, because that's what I was thinking about. Um, I have another metric about the severity of Airbus's misdeeds. I know we're all talking about how it has one of the, the largest anti-corruption fines ever. Not only that, but for the first time in my career, as I have been writing about compliance issues, when I tried to download the documents relative to Airbus's misconduct, they are so large that I got a zipped file. And folks, when your statement of facts and your DPA and your plea agreement and everything else is so extensive that people have to find it in a zipped file that really is something else. That is a whole other level of misconduct that we have seen. Um, but Tom, you had asked me to think about policy management issues around Airbus, and I was, and I was looking through the, the zipped file that I then unpacked, and to a certain extent, I don't mean to be cheeky or flippant here, but you know, why look very much at Airbus's policies? Because from a written perspective, the policies look great. I mean, clearly Airbus had a paper compliance program only, but um, it was great looking paper, it really. And Tom, what jumped out at me actually, as I was thinking about to what to say here today, was a phrase that you had used in one of your blog posts looking at Airbus, where you said this program was clearly designed to be ignored. And that's actually where I wanted to go because that is something that I think a lot of compliance officers might encounter in their jobs, um, that they've got a really good looking paper compliance program and yet people are ignoring it, including people at the top. And how does that come to pass? Why does that come to pass? Well, really, uh, you have a program designed to be ignored when it neuters the power of anybody who does care about ethics and compliance to try and put some force behind that. Um, in theory, sure, management could neuter you by retaliating against you for speaking up. And I am, know that happens all the time. We've talked about it endlessly here. But the other thing that stood out to me about Boeing was this disinterested leadership team for so long that really turned a blind eye. And that was how it, things were designed to be ignored at Airbus. Uh, and it would simply wear compliance and ethics enthusiasts, whether they're just line employees and managers or in the compliance function, it would just it would wear you down. And that seems to be what was the case at Airbus, especially when you look at so many senior executives uh, were really they were involved in that misconduct. And when you look at the reforms that have been put in place Lately, um, we have a restructured compliance function. Okay, great. Uh, reports independently to a new compliance committee at the board. Okay, great. But they also have a new CEO, a new general counsel. I think it's like eight of 12 board members have been replaced. And all of that is good. But it really gets to a point about a bad tone at the top from the start, which I think was the original sin for Airbus here and why CEO leadership matters so much. And I know we talk about CEO leadership all the time and tone at the top is everybody's favorite phrase. Um, this really calls out why that does matter by painting the inverse picture um, that 
Airbus had terrible tone at the top that just couldn't really be bothered to put the paper compliance program it had assembled into meaningful force. And look where it got Airbus. Look where it got those executives who were just ignoring it and uh, you know let it be designed to fail, uh, designed to be ignored. Most of those people, I think, are now out of a job. There are going to be individual prosecutions. We'll see how that goes. Um, so that is something that maybe compliance officers, if they're ever you know, sort of waxing philosophical with their board or the CEO about why a culture of compliance matters, um, is because look at the consequences for not having a code of a, a culture of compliance and not taking things seriously. And I would even say, if you are having these kind of conversations with your colleagues in the C-suite or the board, um, this is all even more true today. This is all more important about leadership putting force behind a paper compliance program because what exists today that did not exist, say, in 2008 or 2005 when this stuff was originally coming to pass was a much more energetic enforcement climate that we see today, and it really does value external whistleblower reporting. So if you design a program that is great on paper and it's designed to be ignored and CEO and senior leaders are ignoring it, those few people who do care have a much easier time of running to the regulators and blowing the whistle, and this is all going to blow up in your face. And when you paint that sort of potential scenario to executives, they'd say, well, I don't want that. Well, if you don't want that, then don't do what Boeing did, which was design a paper program that was destined to be ignored. Um, I did also want to draw one or two connections to Boeing. Um, it's a different uh, type of disinterest here that Boeing had with its uh, MAX problems, really a disinterest in safety risks uh, rather than um, any sort of misconduct. But you know, it was a different sort of risk that they were turning a blind eye to, and I think it was a different layer of the organization. Um, but Boeing did have what I would call a Wells Fargo problem, pressure to generate profits that led to middle management shortcuts that manifested in this disaster with safety. Um, I don't really know how much people might want to compare these two scandals because they're so different. You know, Airbus didn't get innocent people killed in plane crashes, but what Airbus did was very egregious and world widespread and worldwide. Um, but here's one point, actually, I want to put this out to the, the whole crowd here today. So earlier this week, Boeing trying to now put this culture of compliance really into force, uh, they made some news where they fired a mid-level manager who had overseen employees at Boeing who had been exchanging those text messages and emails, really mocking the safety regulators at the FAA, mocking um, other executives at Boeing. Um, the employees' attitude about ethics and safety compliance was terrible. And now they've put it in emails and people sat on it for a long time. But the manager who was fired did not participate in those emails and did not know that the employees he was supervising, he didn't know anything about that that was going on. But the new CEO of Boeing, David Calhoun, said you know, rightly that uh, these messages were totally appalling. And this is a direct quote, awareness in leadership ranks around whether that's happening or not is not an excuse if it is happening. So basically he was saying this manager was in charge of the ethical attitude in his team. Clearly they didn't have it. Even if he didn't know about it, he should have, dude, you're fired. I kind of struggle with if that is the right step to take or not about accountability for a poor ethical culture. Um, I kind of feel sympathetic to this manager, but I also see where the CEO, David Calhoun is coming from that uh, if he wants people to be accountable for the ethical culture of their teams, firing people is a great way to make them aware of that. Um, so I don't know if that's right or wrong, but if anybody on the, the uh, podcast today had any thoughts, I'd love to hear those. Let me take um, a swing at some of the things we got from the United States Deferred Prosecution Agreement and back to some of Jay's uh, initial remarks about the role of not the Department of Justice, but 
or uh, in the United States, uh, Department of Commerce, ITAR, and those regulations, particularly around Jay's thoughts that companies that do business with the government really need to think about and focus on their um, anti-bribery, anti-corruption compliance programs. Is that a message that uh, you think will resonate with corporate America that does business with the government, or is that a message already been communicated? Well, I, I personally think it's already been communicated very well. Um, they get it. I just think that companies still struggle with how do we actually put this into force at scale, up and down the line and across all parts of our enterprise, including our third parties and whatnot. Um, so, I mean, clearly, like, you know, how much more message do you need that you should take good conduct seriously? But the struggle really is with how do you build an effective way to do that at scale? Um, you can have a great looking compliance program. Airbus did, Enron did. You can still ignore it. Airbus did, Enron did, so many others have. Um, and what's the right enforcement mechanism internally to get a company to take these things seriously? I, I think that's where most compliance officers on a daily basis, that's where they struggle. And we could probably talk for many hours about it. Um, and there we are. Mike Volkoff, what did you see from the trade sanction slash ITAR perspective in this matter? Well, this was an uh, interesting case, Tom, because uh, one sort of initial observation is uh, this is the few times we've seen the Justice Department focus on FCPA and export control violations. So like last year, for example, Quad Graphics earned a declination for FCPA and OFAC violations. And if we go back in time, there are two major cases uh, that you're well familiar with. In 2013, Weatherford settled FCPA and export control violations for $252 million. And then if you even go back further to 2011, BAE Systems, although they pled to making a false statement and paid $400 million, it was, uh, the underlying conduct was bribery and ITAR violations. So let's add Airbus to this uh, glorious list of global bribery and substantial uh, ITAR violations. Um, but when you look at the sort of systemic ITAR violations in this case uh, that Airbus engaged in, it really just underscores the complete absence of any commitment, any real commitment to compliance and controls. And to me, it always, when I look at a company of this size, knowing the risks that they have, regulatory risks that they have, how they could just blatantly ignore ITAR restrictions and reporting requirements in the defense industry in which they're a part of is, is beyond, uh, it's beyond comprehension. I mean, it, what it says to you is that this control, the, this culture was not, a they didn't even attempt to make it into a culture of compliance and ethics. Uh, it was a it was a culture that was dedicated to making money and doing so without getting any compliance issues in the way. So let's start just for a little bit. And I know everybody is familiar with sort of the ITAR legal background, but just a couple comments. You have the Arms Control Export Act, which authorizes the president to control. Uh, export of defense articles and defense services, and an executive order that delegated all this authority to the State Department's Directorate of Defense Trade Controls, or DTC, I use for short. And uh, the DTC basically issues licenses for export, exports and transfer of defense articles and services based on a list, a master list called the United States Munitions List, and the DTC promulgated the famous International Trafficking in Arms or ITAR regulations. Airbus uh, absolutely designed, manufactured, and sold products containing defense articles and furnished uh, defense services. Now, they didn't manufacture in the United States, but what they did is export components uh, that were uh, used in the manufacturing of airplanes and helicopters. Now, most of their activity... Uh, relative to ITAR related to Airbus Defense and Space and Helicopters Division. So uh, 
there are basically three categories of violations that we saw. Um, I'm going to spend most of my time talking about two. Uh, one was paying political contributions. They had to report political contributions, commissions, and fees when they sell ITAR-controlled defense articles. So in their license applications, they would have to um, disclose those fee payments. Uh, and a failure to report those payments uh, is required under ITAR. It can be a civil it's a civil or criminal. And Airbus uh, was required to report whether it or a third party paid political contributions of 5000 or more, or commissions or fees of 100000 or more. And here's where we see the crossover of the third party business partners and the failure to control them, because many were operating in prohibited countries under ITAR regulations, and others failed to register and secure licenses. And uh, Airbus itself was not uh, disclosing any sort of commissions that were paid through uh, to the third parties. Um, the other thing is that Airbus was aware of these ITAR requirements. There's plenty of um, evidence to show that. Uh, they knew that they had a large number of third parties uh, and they engaged in sort of deliberate efforts to conceal uh, their involvement in certain uh, transactions. Now, uh, one of the uh, one of the big things that they cited here was the sort of silo between uh, legal and compliance and the Airbus's business operations, and apparently um, they did not cross over very well or coordinate uh, very well uh, during this time period. Now, the interesting thing is that DOJ, uh, I mean DOJ, cited the fact that. For uh, Airbus uh, voluntarily disclosed all of the ITAR problems once they discovered them, and that occurred in uh, 2016. And so they started to submit detailed uh, voluntary disclosures as they, un you know, uncovered uh, the nature of all of these um, violations. And the two biggest, um, the two biggest here were, uh, like I said, the failure to report the commissions. Uh, and fees, and then also um, the large number of third parties who failed to get uh, brokers' licenses uh, as well. And that's where your large third-party population, had DTC known about it, uh, they may have uh, forced Airbus to um, restrict the use of third parties or delve deeper into it. So it's interesting that that happened. But I have to recount one story which is just uh, amazing within, you know, uh, the compliance department and it, it, that we had such a dysfunctional uh, relationship. In July of 2015, Airbus's new general counsel identified ITAR compliance issues relating to uh, the reporting and the new general counsel uh, and, the, you know, sought to get insight and information from the compliance staff. And a senior compliance executive resisted efforts to, you know, change Airbus's existing compliance procedures and claimed that Airbus was conducting proper due diligence of its third parties, which it wasn't, making proper disclosures of political contributions, commissions, and fees, which it wasn't, and reviewing each application to ensure accurate representations as to such payments, which they weren't. And the Airbus senior uh, export compliance management, along with the compliance officer, basically um, lied to the new general counsel and said that there are no problems here um, and uh, that, you know, we're in full compliance and there's no need to go back uh, and review this. And to me, this is, you know, if you can't take the word within your own legal and compliance department, if you can't get an honest answer as to anything, um, what do you think this shows you as to the culture within even the compliance department? It was not just the senior compliance executive, but it was also the, the whole compliance management team uh, engaged in these false representations or allowed it to, to happen with the new general counsel who was trying to do his or her job. So to me, uh, we had such a breakdown in this case, Tom, in terms of basic controls uh, and, uh, and basic issues that it's just, 
you know, they they got off pretty well in the sense that, you know, they ended up paying in the 200 million or so range uh, for, and had they not voluntarily disclosed this conduct, it could have been much worse. Um, but for such a sophisticated company like Airbus to uh, that operates day to day in the ITAR regulatory scheme to miss or ignore this problem for such an extent uh, is really just uh, surprising beyond belief. So um, in the end, we'll see how well they turn it around. Mike, one of the things that struck me about one of your blog posts was that Used the phrase that uh, if Airbus had taken certain actions, their problems may not have spiraled out of control, and that really got me thinking because one of the things compliance practitioners I think are struggling with is this case is so massive, the corruption was so pervasive, they're having trouble understanding or garnering true lessons that they can learn and incorporate into your com their corporate compliance program. And and that phrase that you used in that blog post um, entitled Systemic Bribery and Export Violations, it was part four of four, you really, I thought, uh, yeah. explained that it didn't start out completely out of control. It started small. And that's why you have right. to have robust monitoring going forward. Um, it did spiral out of control at the end, but it didn't start that way. And that's, I think, a key lesson from the, some of these incredibly major compliance uh, corruption scandals. Yeah, and Tom, I always uh, you know, go back, and I think I wrote this too, when you look at a major enforcement case, where was the board, where was senior management? I mean, I don't blame it entirely on them, but uh, you know, there's definitely a dynamic here that occurs when you have an absent board, absent senior management, in uh, a culture that just starts to permeate the company, you know, how can you ever uh, acknowledge and, you know, permit to continue a compliance department that isn't, in, you know, doing its job? I mean, we always assume that compliance people are and legal people are always trying to do the right thing. But what happens when they get co-opted? into the culture of, you know, ignorance and um, allowing, you know, promoting the business at all costs. Um, I, and, and I sort of, let's take another step back, and I know you've written and spoken a lot about Boeing, but here we have the two major companies in the aviation industry, critical to the world's economy, right? And I, I mean, there's, and even go back to Embraer, you know, the the extent of just uh, corruption and failure to maintain a culture of compliance at these uh, companies is just incredible to me. I mean, this makes the oil and gas industry look like the, you know, the, the sweetheart best person in the room because this industry is just uh, having more and more trouble and, you know, Boeing obviously is not about bribery, but it's a culture of just ignorance. So I wanted now to uh, move to our fan favorite selection or section, rather, which, of course, is shout outs and rants. So we will stay in the same order. Um Jay Rosen, do you have a shout out and or rant? Yes, I do. Uh, my shout out goes to four former DOJ prosecutors, Michael Mirando, Adam Jed, Jonathan Kravis, and Aaron Zaliski from all taking themselves off the Roger Stone case. I believe it's an incredible act of heroism, and uh, I hope it lights a fire. Mr. Armstrong. I'm afraid mine's much more lowbrow and flippant. I, uh, Theresa May is now on the speaker tour after the unqualified success she made of the prime ministership in the UK. And I'd like a shout out to her agent. Her agent just uh, secured her a speaking gig for £96,000 sterling uh, to speak at an event that PwC organized in Davos. Uh, for US listeners, that's 125 
$1,000. Now, in case you think that's a lot of money, uh, I should point out in uh, Theresa May's defense that she spent 12 hours, including preparation and travel. So that's a mere 8,000 pounds per hour or $10,500 per hour. So any of you that think that lawyers are expensive, look what it costs to hire a prime minister to meet with your clients. Matt Kelly, high bar. Uh, so I have a shout out to a gentleman named Stephen Martin, who is, or by the time many of you hear this podcast, perhaps was chief auditor of the Dallas Independent School District. So I've been following uh, Mr. Martin's saga lately. He joined the Dallas School District one year ago and immediately went about performing audits of school construction projects where he discovered what seemed to be overpayments in those construction contracts. Uh, in his first two audits, he found $300,000 worth of overpayments on contracts worth $1.2 million. So that's a lot of overpayment in relative terms. Uh, he was then looking at nine more contracts where he was estimating overpayments of $1.7 million and is suspects that this overpayments scam may have been going on for years prior to his arrival uh, and perhaps across hundreds of contracts that could theoretically cost Dallas taxpayers tens of millions of dollars. So what did the Dallas School District do with this information that Mr. Martin uncovered with his audits? First, in January, uh, they proposed removing from Mr. Martin's purview any allegations of fraud amounting to less than $250,000. That would go to a separate Office of Professional Review that is under the superintendent's control. And let's remember, finding small frauds split up among many contracts, adding up to a large fraud, that is exactly what Steve Martin found. Then the school district proposed a surprise job performance review on Mr. Martin and a peer review for his whole department. They proposed that, I think, in earlier this month in February, when that was not scheduled to happen until December 2021. That certainly feels like some sort of retaliation to me. The school district denies that that is the case. But and here is where I really want to give a shout out to uh, Stephen Martin. He even took the step of appearing at a school board meeting on February 11th, where he spoke during the public comment period and lit into the board and said, don't hinder me from doing my job and don't uh, undermine the performance of my team. Um, it looks to me like the fix was in because the very next day, Stephen Martin then said that he is, he tendered his resignation, I think as the end of February is the deadline. I'm not clear on if the board is going to reverse course or not, but my shout out then is to Stephen Martin, uh, auditor of the Dallas School District, who was just doing his job, clearly got a lot of pushback and retaliation for it. And we should always call out nonsense like that when we see it and stand by the profession. So, uh, Stephen Martin, thank you to you for doing your job. Mike Volkoff, do you have a shout out and or a rant for us? Well, only a depressing uh, warning shot that we're uh, in, in a pretty critical period. And I'm not going to speak about the four attorneys resigning, four prosecutors, and I, I know what that takes to do as a former prosecutor myself. Um, but I will say this, that uh, we're on the precipice of probably uh, the undermining of the Justice Department. And uh, just like we've seen with the State Department, we're now going to see a venerable institution under attack. And uh, it breaks my heart, you know, because it's an institution that I have always believed in and was lucky to be a part of and always feel, felt proud of. And now we're seeing something that's uh, pretty, pretty awful to watch. And I never really ever thought it would happen. And I have a shout out. And that's to the beloved owner of the Houston Astros, Jim Crane, who in a press conference yesterday uh, designed to apologize for the Astros sign-stealing scandal, which led to their 2017 World Series championship, said, we are the World Series champions of 2017. Anyone who doesn't like it, T.S., baby, go pound sand. Uh, in the annals of corporate apologies, I cannot think of one that was more straightforward, more direct, more to the point, and communicated exact, 
directly the tone of the owner of a business. So big shout out to Jim Crane. Thanks for taking that on head on. All of baseball is back in love with you and the Houston Astros. Thanks again. So gentlemen, this has been a great podcast. I look forward to seeing what we come up with next time. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks again for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have, I would appreciate it if you would leave us a review on iTunes, as it always helps in our ratings. I hope you'll join the Everything Compliance Gang again, where we take up our next round of topics in our next podcast. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.